This is Hear Her Women Sports, the bi-weekly podcast about female athletes and women in sports. This is Elizabeth Emery, your host and former professional cyclist. Here we go. It's the first episode of Hear Her Sports. I got to send a huge thank you to Ruth Coffey for agreeing to come to the studio to take the first episode of the podcast. She was extremely gracious and generous as we worked things out. In her lovely Irish accent, Ruth, who recently competed in her first Boston Marathon, discussed her training, involvement with America's scores, and energy alignment. Definitely listen to the end of the interview because her words about standing on a marathon start line are moving and wise. Well, to most people, I'm Ruth, but uh, to family and friends, I'm Ruthie, so either one is fine. Very good. And tell me a little bit about your running and how you got started. Okay. Well, I wasn't always a runner. Um, I was always very active. I think in Ireland, where I grew up, you were just normally active as part of your everyday. We walked and cycled everywhere. We certainly weren't a car-based culture by any means. So it was always used to be very active. I had done a lot of ballet, had done gymnastics growing up, and then ended up doing ballet full-time for a while. Uh, When I went back to college in Ireland, after leaving the ballet company, I had been very active just walking and biking everywhere again. When I came to the States, (laughs) it was a big change coming to Cleveland because we were in the car all the time. And uh, I missed that and ended up just getting a pair of running shoes just to try to get a bit more active because I missed that natural part of my day. And definitely started off very slowly, um, but had the bug at that point and fell in love with it. Right away? Right away, yeah. I think I signed up to do a 5K after I started and it took a while to get to that point. I remember I lived in a flat in North Homestead at the time and I remember trying to make it around the block, which was a mile on the button and trying to do that and being absolutely thrilled the first day when I made it that whole mile without having to stop. But I think my first 5K was about... 33 minutes or something. So it was 11 minute mile. I mean, it was nothing, nothing to be proud of from a speed standpoint, but definitely for me just being out and doing something new, it was great. So there had been a time, it sounds like, where you were not active. I would say for, you know, about six months when I first came over here, I'm, I've never been a gym culture person. Uh, so I didn't want to go and start taking a class at the end of the day where somebody's shouting at you, telling you what to do. I wanted it to be something I would do on my own terms and my own time and that I could do alone um, or with a group, but I didn't want to be tied to a schedule with it. So uh, so after about those six months, I was ready to do something. Tell me a little bit more about when you were a kid and, you know, how you got physically fit and what else you were doing and maybe what your family was thinking. And did you have other siblings? Were there other siblings? Yeah. So I'm one of three children. I'm the middle child. And um, I'm sure that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) So my mom and dad were both very active, but in very different ways. My dad was a very, very good rugby player and he was a small man. So he was either a scrum half or a fly half. So he was kind of on the wing, running fast, all of that. Um, And he was a very good tennis player. My mom just walked everywhere. She was just that person. She'd be out gardening. She was walking everywhere, but she was never in an organized sport or a formal kind of sport. Uh, My brother was a good hurler. uh, So it's kind of like lacrosse. And um, what's hurling? Hurling is, we say it's like a cross between lacrosse hockey and murder. 
because you're on a pitch and it's very fast and very strategic but you have uh, a hurl which is like a, a kind of a cross between a stick and a bat and then a, <laughs> a ball that looks like a softball but the stitching's on the outside it's called a schlitter it's very fast so he was he was sporty as well my younger sister not sporty at all she was a musician so yeah but um, we walked everywhere I mean that was the way we were my mum didn't learn to drive until she was well into her 30s and uh, we walked everywhere that was just you really didn't build exercise into your day it was just how it was Um you got a lot of hills there too. Exactly. Yeah. So we did a lot of that. But we had through school, we had um, gymnastics were introduced when we were young and um, we had a ballet school in the town, very small. And so we did that. Did you have gymnastics every day at school or was it like once a week? It was once a week. And then there was a school that opened up outside of our regular, you know, what you would call elementary school here. And um, so we started to go to that as well. And then the ballet was on on Saturdays. So, yeah. And then you became a professional ballet dancer. I did. Yeah, I ended up um, loving the ballet and my teacher was very supportive. And uh, once I had gone as high as I could with the exams in Wexford, I started to go to Dublin on the weekends to get the teaching there. So it was great. That's really yeah. that's and, and you performed and traveled with them. Yeah. So it was marvelous. Yeah. <laughs> what was your favorite place to go? Oh, I mean, being in London, I think, is such a, a heart of the Royal Academy of Dance. Right. Royal Ballet School and all of that. So that was truly special. Do you train alone or with a group? So I always train alone and I've questioned that a lot. And I know here in Cleveland, we're so lucky with the Second Soul running shop and they have an amazing running group. And there are other groups around the Fleet Feet sporting store, the vertical running group. There's a lot of them. But for me, I found just schedule wise with work, I've always worked a little bit further outside of town. I've worked for manufacturers and they tend to be not located in the city. And I kind of assumed for a while that that was why I didn't run with the group. But I think as I know myself better as I get older, I kind of like being able to just go when I want, run the pace that I want, if I want to push it one day, if I want to be alone one day. My work, I work in HR, so I'm with people a lot. And I kind of love that alone time. It's very almost meditative to be by myself. Now, for my most recent training cycle, I did do an online training program, which was great because you got the schedule to follow. And I definitely think they knew a lot about the science of training for running. So it helped me train without getting injured, which was new for me. <laughs> but um, I liked the support of the online community without having to schedule my runs to meet those people. Without actually having to talk <laughs> exactly. to anybody. That's so true. <laughs> you know, this is a really hard question for me. And I've asked it now twice to other people, other athletes that I've spoken to. And I think I'm asking it wrong. So I'm going to ask it as best as I can, but I want you to sort of maybe help me ask the great question. And part of the reason I think I'm asking it wrong is I'm reading a book by Hiraku, here I have it written down, Haruki Murakami. Have you read his book about running? It's a memoir. I haven't, and I've read some of his other books, but I haven't read that one. This is, I'm only halfway through, but it's absolutely fantastic. But one of the things that he says is, Every time I tell people that I run, they ask me this question, which is the question I've been asking, which is, what do you think about when you run? And when I'm asking that question, I don't mean think like, oh, I'm thinking about my shopping list. It's sort of like, you know, you're out there by yourself for so long. Like what's what's happening in your mind and how is that relationship to what's happening in your body? And he has just a beautiful description of that in his book. 
No pressure, though. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think when I first started running, my thoughts about what I was doing, about the space I was in, about who I was when I ran, about my movement in the world at that time was a lot more conscious, conscious, conscious and deliberate. (laughs) I think the more it kind of moved from the front of my brain to the back of my brain in terms of what I was physically doing and being aware of how I felt while I was running, it became more of a ritual. And to me, it's it's almost meditative. It's the only way I can describe it. You know, I'm not somebody who's constantly checking in with their form or their gait or anything like that. I'm not thinking about working through problems or work things. I'm not somebody who resolves things as they run. It's more like, I don't know if you've ever played the piano or you've danced or anything like that, but you you go to a different place where you're not existing on that level of the physical almost. And it's just, it's happening and you don't have to think about it. You're just part of it. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I, but, that's yeah. that's really nice. I, I experience similar when I ride my bike. I suffer too much when I run, so I <laughs> don't go anywhere. Yeah. And it can be painful at times, but it's still, it's all part of that experience. You're just, I guess your body and your mind both know what to expect with it. And so you just have to be... Yeah. Do you do you miss that when you don't run? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, when I'm injured, you're you're prevented from that. And it's not an escape because you're not leaving anything, but just that form of catharsis, I guess. But when you're actually running, I mean, to me, it's just such a time to just feel grateful for your body and that, it, you know, I'm so lucky to be able to run. I always think of that, particularly having worked at Med Device, where, you know, my focus every day was with people who were either losing mobility or already didn't have mobility or had challenges. So I think it is always in the front of my mind. I'm just so grateful to be able to do this. Um, and then just to be out with nature and feel like all these things are going on around you, like you're seeing birds, you're seeing the seasons change, you're feeling the different temperatures, you can feel the air in your lungs differently. It's just a great feeling of, you know, your body's moving as though it's part of all of this. You know, it's it's just a feeling of, yeah, being being part of something bigger than you. So with your training this time, with the regimented and somebody telling you what to do in the past, you've just decided yourself? I've always used, like if I'm training for a specific event, so if I'm training for a marathon, I've always used some kind of a training plan, but the previous ones I've used were more numbers-based. So this day of the week, you run this many miles, this day of the week, you run this many miles, and by the end of this 12-week training cycle, you should be ready to do it for 26.2 miles. This uh, running group that I run with now, um, it's through a group called Runners Connect, and uh, Jeff Gaudet and Sarah Crouch and some of the people who run that site. Uh, Jeff doesn't run professionally anymore, but Sarah Crouch does. In fact, in 2016 in Boston, she was the second American woman to finish. And then they have other coaches on there that are varying in their level of running um, experience and, and expertise, I guess. But they focus very much on everything, the whole physiology, the nutrition, the strengthening, the whole thing. So I learned from their program 
doing just the numbers based plan meant I went out and did all my runs at the same pace and the same effort level. And the faster I went, the better I was training. So inevitably, I got injured so frequently. And as soon as I would be recovered, go right back out and do it again. They really used a lot of science about the slow, long run and really pulling back, I mean, a minute to a minute and a half per mile slower, which is very difficult when you're trying to fit it in at the end of your day and you're not convinced that there's any benefit to it. But they used a lot of examples with people like Meb and other expert runners who talk about their volume of slow running in their overall weekly runs and the benefits just from a muscular skeletal perspective and then you build your speed separately. So for the first time I started doing tempo runs and interval runs and I didn't even know I was doing them. It's just they told me do this six mile run and do these two at a warm up pace which is this. Do these two at a push which is this. These two at a really big push which is this and then a mile cool down and it was only afterwards I thought oh that's what an interval is or whatever you know. So it wasn't it wasn't difficult to do that. And then the community that they had on there, you would log your run and other people would come in and say, oh, I found that one hard. I found this helps. And so again, without having to meet those people (laughs) or run with them and schedule to be someplace at a time to meet them, I was getting a benefit of their experience, people at the similar level to me. That's that's really great. And did you talk person, I mean, personally, uh, emails or whatever with the coaches? Was it specific for you? Definitely was custom for for me. They asked uh, at the beginning, you know, how many miles per week you're running at that point in time, what your current long run was, what your goal pace was or your goal race was, I should say, and then what your pace was in the most recent one of that distance or something close to that injuries you'd had prior to that. So they really built the whole schedule around you and what you needed. And then if you needed a change during the cycle, if you did get injured or you got sick or anything else happened, they modified it for you. That's great. Great. Yeah. And you didn't get injured. I didn't, which is great. Now, for two marathons with them on this plan, I did not get injured. That's so, great. Yeah, delighted about that. <laughs> so what now? I don't know. Um, it's just two weeks since Boston, so still kind of in recovery mode, uh, thinking I might just do some halves this summer to get some speed work going and then maybe get back into some falls in the fall. It sounds like you like to train. I do. I love to train. I don't do that many races during the year. That's actually a really good observation. Um, I just love to to be out there training. Yeah. Then why do you uh, do the competitions? Just it's a competition with myself. I think it's one of my favorite things about running is there's there's so little competition. I mean, you're not going to win in these things, right? There's going to be some elite way ahead of you. You just get to be on the same course as them. So you're never competing with anybody else. You're just competing with yourself and your own time, if that's what you're doing in that race. Um, And even sometimes you're not, like I'm probably going to do the Cleveland Half Marathon now um, in two weeks time, but I'm running it with my friend Mike, who is an amazing person and has dropped about 80 pounds in the past two years. I was with him for his first half marathon on the towpath and I ran my pace and then waited for him. And to see him finish his first half marathon was the most rewarding thing in the world. And now I'm going to run with him in the Cleveland one because he wants to hit a time goal of under two hours and 20 minutes. So I'm going to pace him. And so I think whatever you're doing, there's no competition. You know, you're just competing with yourself and people are so welcoming in the running community. Nobody cares if you're running a 12 minute mile or a five minute mile. They just want you to be out there. There's always going to be way more people participating than spectating. And it's just the best feeling to be part of that, you know. So I love it. 
But explain to me, I mean, you could just get up and go whenever you wanted and not worry yeah. about the schedule and not pay the $50 or whatever yeah. it is and go on your own. So what's yeah. what's the draw of doing the competition? I like to have a goal. I like to feel like, okay, my last marathon was this time. You know, can I do better in this one? And I like seeing that as you have your training plan and like your initial speed work might call for a certain amount of intervals, 800 meter intervals, this many at this speed. And the first time you do it, you can't hold out and you're just out of breath and you're frustrated with yourself and you don't want to train anymore. And then a few weeks later, you look at how you did it and you had to really, really push, but you did it. And then towards the end of the training cycle, a few weeks later, you know, you can do it, you know, and, and those kind of achievements and goals make you feel, make you feel good. Like you're achieving something. Maybe I'm trying to fight aging too. I don't know. It's not intentional, but maybe there's some of that there. So, yeah. And I discovered that you do American Scores. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So America Scores is an after school programming um, organization there. It's a national, actually a national presence, but we have a Cleveland uh, office that has been in effect for 30 years. And we do after school programming in now 10 uh, municipal Cleveland schools. And we do the lure of soccer in the summer to get the kids in. And we do uh, leagues between the various schools and transport the kids to get there and provide them with their uniforms and coaching and all of that. And then in the non-good weather <laughs> months, we do uh, creative writing with them and poetry and try to help them express themselves and uh, learn how to talk about what they're thinking about and find positive ways to communicate with one another. So, that's, uh, And are you involved on a daily basis with that or a weekly basis? I'm the board chair, so I would say weekly, definitely. And um, then it's a very hands-on board. So yeah, there's, there's not a week goes by when there's not something we're doing with America Scores. It's both women and or girls and boys yep. that get involved? Girls and boys. And do you see any difference between what happens with the girls and the boys, you know, being involved with the poetry and with the soccer? That's a great question because, yeah, I think when they're younger, the boys are less inhibited and they'll say more things and they'll be a little more forthcoming with their words and all of that. As they get older, it shifts and the girls become a little more introspective and want to write about things and the boys become less into expressing things. So, yeah, they still all love the soccer the whole way through. But yeah. Well, that's good. In the that's good. It's different. Yeah. And, and uh, has it been easy to transport the kids? I know that the yeah, no, it hasn't. We have a lot of reliance on the coaches, on the teachers. The teachers in the Cleveland Municipal School District are amazing and they do this on a voluntary basis for a small stipend. And we take the kids all over the place. So few resources are available for them and to get them places and get them back safely and, you know, make sure they have their leagues and they get to experience some time on the pitch. I mean, it's all done out of the dedication of our coaches and teachers and they're amazing. Yeah. And you've been doing it for three years. Have you seen students graduate? graduate and go on? Yeah, I've actually been involved with them for five years. We've been doing the Inspired Art for three. And for the first time now, we have an alumni program where five um, young gentlemen are very involved in helping us get the younger kids um, recruited. And we have the first few kids going away to college. So that's fantastic. Huge achievement for them. I couldn't be more full of admiration for them. Yeah. And do they feel that the program has helped them? Absolutely. I mean, to hear Treshawn or Sebastian or any of them talk about where they were when they went in and what they've gotten from the program. It's really it's amazing to think that they they were that insightful to to get that from it, you know, so it's great. How about editing? I mean, one of the things that I'm discovering about writing is, man, it's you don't just write it and then you're done. You have to 
do editing. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of what you're talking about with sports, having to go back exactly. and do it again. Do it again, do it again, make it better. And like, there's no there's no end thing to say. Now I've I've been there. It's like even if you had a really good race, your first thing at the end of it is, I wonder, could I do faster? You know, and it's the same as editing. Yeah. Could I make it better? If that word's better than what else? How could I make the flow better? Could I make the imagery better? Whatever. Yeah. How are the kids responding to poetry? Uh, it depends. Um, some of them are very good and are very, uh, you know, they're very comfortable thinking about things and trying to express that. Others are only there purely because they know they have to in order to get to the soccer pitch. <laughs> so it varies. Right, yeah. right. But that said, I will say that even the kids who are like that, when they hear a good poem that resonates with them, they want to do better. So you can see that sometimes in them. Not all of them, but some of them. Yeah. And, and do the same kids come back year after year? Yes. I bet that helps a lot. It does. And you see their siblings as well. So right. and the parents even, we like to involve where parents are available. We like to get them involved as much as possible. Yeah. Do you think that your success in sports relates to your success as a businesswoman? I definitely think that... There's some people who are just naturally, I think their their body responds to their brain better or whatever that link is better. And you're just you're just lucky if that happens. Um, and I think there's people who are way better at sports than I am. Like I'm like middle of the road. But um, I think the things I've learned from sports definitely stand to me every day at work. I mean, the idea of having to put in the work to get the results, the idea of having to be persistent, the idea that good days come with bad, that there's times when you're going to lose, that, you know, it's it's a constant process. And if you're true to yourself and you're putting in what you know you need to, you know, you should get what you want out of it at the end and that kind of thing. So I think that's really important. I think particularly for kids in sports, I think it's why it's so great that kids in sports, you know, they take things, they learn to be responsible. You know, if, if I didn't put the work in, if I didn't put the training in before a race, I can't expect to have a good race. You know, you might get lucky once or twice, but it's not going to stand to you. The luckier you get, the more you practice, you know. <laughs> and are you able to pass that alone at American Scores? Definitely, definitely. You can talk to the kids a lot about that, whether it's the writing side or the sports side, you can really talk about that with them yeah how do you fit all this in and how do you fit your training in and how do you make it a regular part of your life yeah for me i'm lucky i guess in that um you know steve and i are very supportive of things that both of us do and we don't have kids at home so it's easy for me to be selfish with my time in the evening after work and go and get my runs in and on a Saturday morning for my long run I just get up and go early so um, for us it doesn't impact our lives hugely except during the week I probably don't cook dinner as much as I used to so I know that that's tough for him but he's supportive <laughs> so you go after work I go after work during the week and then in the mornings on the weekend isn't that dark I'll sometimes I'll treadmill it if it's dark yeah or I'll go somewhere where it's well lit like Lakewood's pretty well lit right right, right yeah yeah where do you what do you eat if you're not making dinner <laughs> oh I'll just cook extra on the weekends and we'll have stuff there oh okay it's not just like something fresh coming out of the oven when he comes home <laughs> like a 1950s housewife you know 
And you also mentioned that the program that you're on talks about nutrition. Yeah. Have you learned anything in this new program? Definitely, you know, about fueling during races, for sure. I was always really bad at doing that and always bonked at like mile 21 in the marathon and all of that. So definitely goose and the right amount of carbs beforehand, not just carb loading two days before. Right, and right. Um, they're good about that and not overhydrating and those types of things. They're pretty What's overhydrating? So some of the problem they said now with people drinking these huge things of water, water all the time every day that we don't actually need that much <laughs> and um, people are drinking so much water in the week before a race that they're actually depleting their salt and potassium levels. Oh, because so it goes right out. They start the race, they're depleted in that and then as you sweat, particularly if it's a hot day and you're running, you're going to really get in trouble much earlier in the race because you're going to take in water and a little bit of Gatorade maybe during the race, but it's not going to be enough because you've been depleting yourself all week. Right, right. Yeah. So what are you eating during the race or drinking? So before the race, like before a marathon, usually that morning when I get up, I'll eat a bagel. And then during the race, I'll have a goo <laughs> at mile seven, mile 14 and mile 21. Okay. And um, then always if I'm taking a goo, I'll take some water at the water stop after that. And then like every three or four miles, I'll stop at the water stop and get a little mix of Gatorade and water, just a mouthful. So, yeah. And are you taking the goos or they have those? I take them with me. Yeah. Where do you put them? I usually give them out. But um I like to have my own that I'm comfortable with that my stomach's used to. So I have, I always wear shorts with a zipper. So I put two of the goos in there. And I, <laughs> so it's so weird that you asked me that this time. Usually I carry the third one in my hand and you're warned again and again by everybody who runs, don't change anything on race day. What did I do before Boston this year? Was carrying the goo in my hand and somebody next to me in the crowd said, why are you carrying that in your hand? You could just put it in your sports bra. So I did. And then it slowly carved its way into my right <laughs> oh. in the first seven miles. By the time I took it out, I was like, ow. Of course, I didn't even notice it. Sure, I was so of course. excited about the beginning right. of the race. But such a stupid thing to do. So usually I put two in my shorts pockets and one in my hands. Right. So, and yeah. now you will do that in the future. <laughs> Definitely will do that in the future. <laughs> so stupid. With the training, do you do cross training, uh, weightlifting or yoga or anything like that? I should do more of that, but I don't do a whole lot of it. I find timing wise, just with the way I am at work and stuff, I tend to work long days. Um, trying to fit in like a nine mile run in the evening on a Monday and then speed work on a Tuesday. It's like, unless I had nothing else to do, I definitely do core strengthening and stuff like that because I've had so many um, different injuries over the years. I'm 45 now, so, you know, um, they add up. But uh, so I definitely will always do certain stretching and core work after every run I do. Foam rolling, all that's, that stuff. That's yeah. Admirable. Oh, I, f I need to, you know, but I used to do a little more like upper body weights and stuff like that. And I don't fit that in anymore. And I, I probably would benefit if I did. But I just I have to balance. Is it worth that or getting the miles in? And to me, it's worth getting the miles. Do you have any other little quirks that you could uh, talk about? No, I mean, I definitely think, you know, I have a, I like to get a new pair of shoes, but wear them for at least I'll start like three weeks before the marathon wearing them so that they're broken in. But sure. I like to have a relatively new pair of shoes. Um, I don't I don't really have any other quirks, I think, during races. I'm Do you listen to music beforehand or during or anything? No. And it's funny. I used to listen to music a lot when I was running. And then in Akron one year, it would have been 2013, I took off with this <laughs> 
this playlist again don't do anything different today's race but I took off with this playlist and I really mean I took off with this playlist I, mean, I don't know what I had on it I think the theme from the Bourne Ultimatum I love that song oh my god I took off like a bullet from a gun and of course I heard my way through the first half of the marathon and then by mile oh, 15 I just realised I have been literally dancing to this music and now I've got 12 more miles to go and I'm in trouble you know or 13 more miles to go so that wasn't good so now what I do is I always have my headphones in from the beginning of the race and I do make a playlist that I haven't listened to prior to the race but with sounds I know have a good bit of pep in them and my intention like in Cleveland last year at about mile 19 or 20 I turned it on so I had that pep for the last few miles it really did give did me it work boost. it did I still felt like crap at the end of that marathon <laughs> but um, but in Boston I went to turn it on at mile 20 but the crowds were so loud I couldn't even hear it so it was fantastic wow yeah but um but I don't listen to music the whole time right so why was Boston such a big goal for you Boston is the pinnacle of running for distance runners. As soon as you say you do marathons to anybody else who runs, they'll ask you, have you ever done Boston? Now you can say yes. Yeah, I know. (laughs) So lucky. Um, I think it's because you have to qualify for it. You know, pretty much any other race you can either get in on a lottery or just register for. Boston's the only one where you have to qualify and hit those times. And I know... I think a lot about the fact that the times are more aggressive for men than they are for women. But I do think if you look at the winning times for men and women, there is just a physical difference in how fast you can run a marathon. So I guess I feel guilty for a minute and then I just want to be there. (laughs) So I'll take whatever qualifying time. (laughs) And I've been lucky. I've been well within the qualifying time. So I don't I feel like I would have gotten in as a younger racer. Right. Yeah. Do you think that the women will ever race at the same speed, same pace? You know, it's so interesting because Steve and I have been talking a lot about transgender issues and how is that going to impact sports? And I think that that's going to raise a whole host of interesting questions now of how are we going to classify, you know, this typically just male and female sports. So if you have, you know, either male or female transgender, how how are we going to categorize what grouping someone should be in so they're individually competing against people at their own um, challenge level? And I think that's going to be really interesting to see in lots of areas of sport. I don't know if women would ever be able to run the marathon as fast as men, um, maybe. But I think right now there's just physical, muscular, skeletal differences that equipment and training gear and everything can compensate for right now. So I think we're a while away from anything like that, truthfully. Yeah. And uh, let's see, what else? Any thoughts that you have? I guess, uh, I don't know, I guess the one thing that always shocks me in marathons is when I just think of the difference of natural physical ability going into it and the importance of mindset and that going in. I'm always shocked that at mile 18 of a marathon, even if it's, you know, like the last two I've done, which would have been Boston and then Cleveland last year where I qualified, I trained hard for those. I mean, I really did. And there's always some guy at mile 18 who's in black socks and an ACDC t-shirt who just runs by you and you're just going, how did he get here? I mean, it's just amazing that these people line up at the beginning of a marathon and 
some of them look like they've never run a day in their life and they're just amazing runners. Mm-hmm. So that to me is always fascinating. I think the other thing I love about marathons is when you line up at that start line and I'll get emotional now even talking about it. There's no one who goes through training for a marathon that hasn't gone through some kind of change during it, a life change, an expectation of themselves, change, a loss of something either related to running or not. Just everybody's gone through something because it's always at least a 12 week training period. And everybody has a story at that start line. And the start line is that's the end, like the start is the beginning of the end of that cycle. And I just always look around at the start line. It always chokes me up. It's like everybody is here and they've overcome something or they've learned something. They're changed in some way to be here. That's powerful, you know, and they're going to muscle through something that no one finds easy. And we're all here just to do it. And it's amazing. It always moves me every time. The finish line for me is is part of it, but the start line is is where it really gets me. Yeah. Well, I had never thought about it. May I ask you what your change was? For me, Boston was amazing for me in that my mom died on March twenty oh. second, and it was very unexpected. So we went home to Ireland. I'm so and, sorry. Uh, thanks. Yeah, and um, she was just she lived life to the fullest every minute and uh, so for me to come back having expected to call her and talk to her about it because I talked to her every Saturday after my training runs and she was an avid reader as well and we talked books and all of that and she loved that sports had stayed such a big part of my life I think for all the years and to run that and kind of feel like I felt like her and my dad were in my head just my dad kind of focusing on the physical part of running and my mother saying like don't miss anything observe it all take it all in and so to run by the girls at Wesley at the halfway mark and read all the signs and all of that taking all the cheering in Boston and it was amazing to run and feel they were both with me but then I felt I had such a such a deadline in my head of April 18th that after the race I felt like really the grief crashed in but uh, but yeah that was my big change so, that's a yeah. that's a big change a big yeah <laughs> well that's nice that they'll be related to running yeah definitely it was it was really special too you know it made it a, a really meaningful run and, and to run with a purpose like that was really it was really in my heart as I did it I wanted to make them proud that's know? nice yeah that's nice do you have any training secrets the one thing that I would say this time that I learned about that I never did before was I went for an injury to acupuncture and I had never done acupuncture before. So I believed in it so much. It helped my injury so much that I went after the funeral in Ireland, my mom's funeral. I went again to get my energy aligned <laughs> before the marathon. And I never would have done something like that before. I mean, I'm such a pragmatic kind of scientific person that somebody had told me I could get my energy aligned before a run. I mean, I never would have thought it would Did it help? Totally helped. No way. <laughs> Absolutely helped. Yeah. Sure, there's some placebo effect. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it really did. I don't know how it worked. Oh, my God. That's worked. fantastic. <laughs> so that's my quirk. That's, that's your quirk. Oh, that's yeah. a good one. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thanks very much for talking. Oh, thanks so much, Elizabeth. And good luck with the project. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Goldmines, for the use of the song Incomparable from their recent album, Goldmines. Find a link to their site at hearhersports.com. Support the female athletes you know. Ask for better media coverage of women's sports in your local paper. Support this podcast by visiting our website, hearhersports.com, and by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. 
Soon we'll be offering incredibly cute Hear Her Notebooks designed by the wonderful Agnes Studio. Thanks to Ruth again and to Patty Jerka of Leap. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.